Well, good morning. Good to see everybody today. What a beautiful day, and we are grateful for the day the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? So good to see everybody today. Um, I, at these first few services, I'm kind of rehearsing both inside and outside what we're doing in hopes that you will help us get the word out to people who maybe haven't connected yet. And um, mainly, I just want you guys to know, because you obviously know we have an indoor service at 9 and a 1030 service outside. Um, I want you to, as you have opportunity, let people know that we are doing kids space at both times indoors. Um, and some of you have taken advantage of that. And also just be sharing with people that uh, things may change along the way, um, that we're going to stay flexible and uh, adaptable because we're going to keep doing whatever it is we need to do uh, as a church family to reach as many people as possible, to meet as many needs um, as possible. So uh, with that in mind, go ahead and get your Bibles open, whether you've got a paper copy or an electronic copy. Uh, to the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian Christians. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 today. And our title for our talk today is Working Out. And I know that probably gets some of you really excited and some of you really discouraged. Uh, but what I want to say is you're both wrong because it's not what you think. And what we're going to do today is explore a concept that so many Christians misunderstand. But it's a truth that's actually right at the beating heart of Christianity, what it means to follow Christ. And you really cannot truly be filled with joy if you don't get this and put this into practice. So with that in mind, uh, let's read God's word together. Follow along in your copy. Uh, Paul writes, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, if you didn't know it before, you know it now that the working out that we're talking about has nothing to do with gyms or with running or with weights or Pilates or anything else. Now, let me give you what Paul's key teaching is in these verses, and uh, you can write it down. Uh, if you're taking notes on a piece of paper, or you can write it down in the app, the outline that is there. Paul says, a joyful life requires us to work out what God has worked in. A joyful life requires us to work out what God has worked in. And lots of people, I think, struggle to understand what it is Paul is saying here. Lots of people take Paul's words to places that Paul never actually goes. Uh, let's unpack these words together. The first word in verse 12 is that word, therefore. And as I've told you before, whenever you see the word, therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is this therefore? Okay? First bad joke of the day. There may be more coming. I don't know. 
Uh, but it is a good way to remember what this word is about. It's always referring back to something that has just been said. And in this case, what Paul is about to say, it tells us has everything to do with what he has just said in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. And just to recount what we learned last week, in those verses, Paul tells us we are to humble ourselves by putting other people first. He tells us that joy doesn't come from getting our needs met, but from meeting the needs of others. And we know this is true because Jesus is the happiest person who's ever lived, right? And Jesus is the person in all human history who was most about humbling himself and putting others first. And that's actually what Paul's point precisely is. He's telling us, do what Jesus did. That even though Jesus was God in love, he gave up his rights to serve us. He humbled himself even to death on a cross. Uh, But then God exalted him so that every knee uh, could bow, every tongue could confess that Jesus is Lord. And what you need to understand is that with that word, therefore, Paul is reminding us of the gospel. He's taking our minds back to the gospel, what Christ has done for us. And in light of the gospel now, in what's ahead, he's going to show us how that should play out in our lives. So he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what's Paul saying to us when he says, work out your salvation? I think for us to understand what he is saying, we must be really clear on what he is not saying. And I'll put it this way. Working out your salvation has nothing to do with working for your salvation. Working for your salvation, let me be clear, is completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. It's about having to earn it, having to deserve it. And this is actually, you should know, this is actually, this works righteousness, this works oriented is actually humanity's default mode and it's pretty much what every other religion in the world teaches let me give you a few examples Uh, i think if you've been noticing uh, it's not been hard to see uh, that islam is more and more present around us in our area in the last few years islam for example teaches that you have to earn you have to work your way to paradise Uh, One of their five core beliefs is that one day Allah will judge all people, and on that day each person's deeds are going to be weighed in the balance. And and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you are rewarded with paradise. But if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you will be sent to hell. And, And what this inescapably means is that you cannot know until that final day of judgment whether or not Allah will accept you. And this is one of the reasons why Muslims take the five pillars or five practices of their faith so seriously. This is the way they can tip the scales in the right direction. And so devout Muslims will practice things like saying 17 cycles of prayer each day at dawn and noon, at mid-afternoon, at dusk, and then two hours after sunset. It's why they they must wash themselves a certain way before praying. It's why they they have to pray facing toward Mecca. It's why they have to engage in an annual fast. It's why they have to give a certain amount of their income. It's why in remembrance of Muhammad receiving the Quran during the month of Ramadan, Muslims must fast during the daylight hours all month. And during the fast, they cannot eat or drink or smoke or engage in sexual relations. 
it's why devout Muslims, uh, every devout Muslim must make the pilgrimage to Mecca at least once during their life. And while they are there, they, they are to perform certain rituals, including mass animal sacrifice. And all of these things, all of these things they do because they have to. It's their only hope of being saved. See, this is a system that's based on working for salvation, on earning your way, on doing enough, all to please Allah. Now, I won't go into it in, in any detail, but, but Hindus, though they have a very different concept of salvation, in the end, whether or not you achieve what they are aiming for with salvation depends on what you do. It depends on your works. I'll give you one more example of another group that's wired in this way, and this is one that claims to be a Christian group, but it's actually not. This is the Jehovah Witnesses. And they teach that when it comes to salvation, only 144,000 people go to heaven. Everyone else is going to remain on earth, and those special 144,000 will rule uh, with Christ in heaven. And so the question is, how do you get into the 144,000? Well, the answer is you have to work for it. And, of course, you don't know whether you make it or not until you die and you stand before God, at which point, of course, it's too late to do anything about it. So now, while you have a chance, you have to work as hard as you can, and you have to hope for the best. And it is work, hard work. You have to work a certain number of hours every week knocking on doors. You have to sell a certain number of magazines and books. You have to attend five meetings a week at the Kingdom Hall. It's on and on and on. And all of this is in hopes that when you die... You, you will make the cut. In addition to that, they have to fill out these reports uh, with all kinds of details about the work they do each week. All of this information gets sent in, and it's kept on record uh, it, at headquarters, which is in Brooklyn. And then along the way, if you don't work hard enough or if you step out of line, the local leaders can bring you up on a trial and kind of take away any chance that you would have of, you know, uh, making that A-list. Now, I want to be really, really clear. Please do not hear me mocking any group that practices their religion like this. That's not what I'm doing. I don't feel any scorn. I'm actually grieved that men and women that God created in his image, that God loves, are so weighed down with heavy burdens, burdens that they may carry all of their, your, their lives. And I want you, who know Christ and follow Christ, to see that what Christianity teaches is radically different. Salvation is utterly of God's grace. We cannot work for our salvation in any way. There is nothing that you have done, nothing that you could do in any way that would ever merit or earn God's grace, God's love, God's salvation. And this is all through the New Testament. Maybe the, the clearest expression of this is also written by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, grace is getting what you don't deserve, not getting what you do. And salvation is... Is God's gift that he gives freely. He gives it out of the overflowing abundance of his love. But here's the thing that happens sometimes. Sometimes sometimes people take that and it leads them to think that grace may mean something like, you know, if nothing I do matters and if God is gracious, then that means I can do anything and God's going to forgive me. But grace is never permission to sin. 
Grace is the power to overcome sin. And grace actually empowers us to defeat sin because grace, it trains us in righteousness. I heard someone say very aptly, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And so let me just be clear. We do not work for grace. But what we're seeing today and what Paul wants us to understand today is that grace gives us power to work. And that's what he's talking about when he says, work out your salvation. Let me just put it this way. If we truly understand grace, we will work harder. We will work harder out of the overflow of gratitude for the amazing grace that God has gifted us. Let me just say it again. Working out our salvation means we work. It means we work hard. It means we strive. It means we take it seriously. In fact, Paul says, the next phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what does fear and trembling mean? Well, I think Paul is telling us that our response to the salvation God has worked in to us should be a response of reverential awe and amazement. It means fear and trembling. It means that I look at the sin and the darkness in my heart and life, and I see who I would be without God's grace, and I say in wonder, God saved me. God rescued me. God is holy and pure and righteous, and I am dark and sinful and rebellious, and I was doomed, and there was nothing I could do about it. But God, in his love, reached down in humility and in sacrificial mercy, and God gave his son Jesus to die on the cross in my place. God saved me. That's what God has done for me. God worked that in. I want to work that out. See, fear and trembling is just a response to grace. Fear and trembling means we are understanding how amazing grace truly is. And, and, and when we work out our salvation, it shows actually that we are grasping the magnitude of what God has worked into us. But as we're doing this, I want to be clear. We must always remember, and you may want to write this down and just think about it. We must always remember that we work hard by grace. We work hard by grace. This means that it is God's power working in us. It means we cannot do work on our own strength. Paul also expresses this truth very uh, well in another uh, of his letters. This is from Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. And he writes, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That's verse 28. That's what we do. How do we do it? That's verse 29. To this end, I labor. Say labor. Struggling. Say struggling. With all his energy. His energy, which so powerfully works in me. So I labor. Uh, One translation says I toil. Uh, I struggle. But how do I do it? I do it with his energy. His energy is powerfully working in me. It's his energy. It's his power. It is God who is at work in me. And so I want to ask you, Southwinds, are you working out your salvation? 
And are you doing it with fear and trembling? You know, part of the reason that we, I think, sometimes struggle to understand what Paul is saying here is that many Christians have a kind of a defective view of salvation. I mean, I think you know this if you've been around for very long, and maybe you've even been at this point at some point in your life, but a lot of people think that being saved means you pray a prayer, God forgives your sins, and then you get to go to heaven when you die. That's it. That's kind of their whole idea of salvation. But you see, the Bible has a much richer, much deeper, much more profound picture of salvation. And if you were to kind of do a study on the words saved, saved, salvation, those words, you're going to find in the New Testament times when that word shows up in the past tense where, where the writer will talk about how we w- were saved. And then you're going to find times where the word is in the present tense where the writer is going to talk about how we are being saved. And then you're going to also find some occurrences where it says we will be saved one day future tense. And there's actually some doctrinal terms for this that are very, very important. And maybe you want to write this down, too. The doctrinal terms for this are justification. That's past tense salvation. This is what happens when when God justifies us. He makes us right with himself by giving his son who stands in our place. He forgives our sin. Justification is I uh, have been saved or I was saved. And then sanctification, that's present tense. This is what God is doing in our lives right now. We are being saved when all of our lives God is making us through his uh, spirit's work more and more like Jesus Christ, more and more holy. We are being sanctified. We are being saved. The language the Bible uses. And then there's glorification. So justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's future tense where one day God will take all of the sin out of our lives forever. Praise God. Amen? Someone has once uh, said, or well said, that salvation is being saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification. It's being saved from the power of sin in your life. That's sanctification. And it is one day being saved from the presence of sin. That's glorification. And when you put all of these things together, what you have to begin to grasp and have to begin to wrap your mind around is this. God has done something in us that is mind-blowing and glorious. I mean, do you stop sometimes to think about it? God has saved you from eternal death. God has given you eternal life. And if you really stop to think about that, how could we ever respond to his salvation with anything less than our all? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to think that salvation wouldn't involve our work and our effort. I mean, just think about what it means to follow Christ. You cannot unleash the power of prayer without praying. You cannot be guided by the truth of God's word without reading it. You cannot be filled with the presence of God if you don't create room and space in your life for him through silence and solitude. If all you ever do is live with the constant noise of all of your devices ringing in your ears. You cannot be challenged by godly men and women if you're not in relationship with godly men and women. You cannot have a heart for the poor like Jesus did if you never get involved in serving the poor. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you're not keeping step with the Spirit. You cannot live a life, a demonstrated life that is the fruit of the Spirit, you know, a life of love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control if instead you are embracing a life of sexual immorality and hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and, and envy. You see, it just, it just stands to reason that the life that God has put in us, the life that God has worked into us through his grace, through his mercy, is meant to be worked out. We're meant to appropriate it, to cooperate with it, to follow it, to develop it. That's what Paul's writing about here. He's writing about us living out the life that God has birthed in us. See, salvation is not just a gift or an event. It's something alive. It's something dynamic, and it is meant to permeate every aspect of our lives, and that is God's agenda, and we are called to be deeply and actively involved in that agenda, that process. Or if I could say it this way, this is not a game. But sometimes, some of us who name the name of Christ act like it is. Paul actually addresses this in another one of his letters. This is in the book of Romans. This is chapter 6, verses 1 and 4. And Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You say, what's what's Paul talking about? Well, there was this kind of idea floating around. Some people were adopting it. Then Paul was addressing it. People were thinking, you know, if my sin means that, that I need forgiveness and then I find forgiveness through the grace, I find that forgiveness through the grace of God that flows from Jesus Christ, then does grace mean that God will always forgive my sin no matter what? And of course, we would say yes. But then people would say, well, does that mean that it's not a big deal whether I sin or not? I mean, as long as I ask forgiveness, I'm going to be forgiven, right? Why not? They conclude, why not? Just go for it. Why not just sin away? You know, do all the sin you can. I mean, I sin, I get forgiveness. I sin, I get forgiveness. So, so once I'm in Christ, that means sin is no longer an issue. That means I can relax about it. In fact, if you think about it, the more I sin, the more God gets to display his grace and his glory. And that's a good thing, right? So just go for it. And Paul says to that, are you kidding me? He says, what are you thinking? Are you crazy? That's sort of like saying, okay, you know, now I'm married. I got that covered. I got the piece of paper in my hand. I got the ring on my finger. That means now, you know, I can sleep with whoever I want since I have the marriage thing covered. And as long as I come home to my wife and I make sure that she knows at the end of the day that I'm committed to be with her, I ask her to forgive me, I tell her I'm not going to leave, then what I do doesn't matter. Right? That makes sense? Say, biblically, By no means. That's what Paul would say. I mean, that's crazy. So in the same way that you get married and then you grow in the commitment 
you grow in the devotion, you deepen that marriage, you get saved, and then you grow in the commitment, you grow in the, in the devotion, you grow in the deepening of your salvation. And if you are a someone who refuses to try to live that new life, refuses to give yourself to that new life and its new commitment, if you do that, then all you're doing is you're just degrading and you're dishonoring everything the relationship is about, everything the relationship stands for, everything that Christ did for us in order for us to have it. So work out your salvation with the proper seriousness and commitment and devotion with the hard work, with the fear, and with the trembling that it deserves. Now, you say, okay, I think I got it. How? How do I do this? How do we work out what God has worked in? Now, Paul gives us three ways that we can do that in verses 14 through 18. And I'm, I'm going to uh, calm your, your, uh, your anxious hearts right now, okay? I'm not going to spend as much time in the last five verses as I did in the, the first two. All right? Do you feel better? Because I know many of you are worried about that. You're going like, he's got three more points here, and he's spent all this time on point number one, and I'm never going to get home, and I'm hungry already, right? Some of you are thinking that. Let's be honest, right? Okay. Well, we're going to do these a little bit quicker, but here's what they are, three practical ways. And the first one is this. This may surprise you. The first way you work out your salvation, Paul says, is this. We turn away from grumbling and arguing. I just have to ask a question. How many of you don't like that? Some of you are sharp enough to get where I'm going there, but others of you say, I'm not biting. We turn away from grumbling or arguing. Look at verses 14 and 15. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And here's what I want to point out. I think it's fascinating that the first thing Paul thinks about when he starts giving examples of working out our salvation is don't grumble, don't argue. Because I think we kind of think that sounds kind of trivial. Like, this is really small stuff. I mean, you know, everybody complains, right? No big deal. But it is a big deal. Here's why. You could write this down to think about it. Grumbling means that I am not content for someone else to be in charge. And this particular someone is a capital S someone. I mean, it's right there at the root of complaining because complaining always entails this kind of thinking. You know, if I was in charge, if I was the king, I would make this so much better than me, for me. If I was in charge, if I was the king, but you know, this other king seems to be in charge, and I don't know, maybe he's not in charge. I mean, I think maybe if he was in charge, he'd be making better decisions. You're not accepting someone else, God, being in charge. And then you kind of go on in your mind to say and think, you know, another thing, (laughs) maybe God's not clear that I'm entitled to better than this. I mean, if I can think of a better situation, surely the creator of the universe can come up with a better plan. So what this means, secondly, is, is that grumbling means I think I deserve more than God has given me. Right? Do you see this? See, grumbling strikes at the very heart of our relationship with God. Grumbling means we're not accepting his sovereign providence in our lives. And at its heart, grumbling, complaining is rebellion. 
and it needs to stop. And Paul says part of working out your salvation is you do everything without grumbling or complaining. Now, you may be saying, well, how do I do that? And the answer is actually very simple, simple to grasp, a lot harder to implement in our lives. But I put it like this. We kill grumbling with gratitude. We kill grumbling with gratitude. And here's how you do that. You, you, you are grateful when you go back to the gospel, you go back to the salvation that God has so mercifully and graciously given us. And we learn to discipline ourselves to be thankful. And it is a discipline, right? I mean, it takes no effort at all to complain. You know, here's how I know. And you just check this out. You can send me emails later. But I'm going to prophesy right now. Okay, I don't do this very often, but I'm doing this today. It's because I really like this group that's here this, this morning. I'm going to make a prophecy. And the prophecy is this. Someone here in this courtyard is going to complain before you leave the property. Now, I hope you make my prophecy not come true. But I'm not expecting it to happen. Right? How many of you think the odds are extremely good that someone else here, not you, someone else here is going to complain before they leave this property today? How many of you think the odds are really good? Right. Yeah, we do. Because it's easy to complain. We, we do it all the time. It's a lot harder to be thankful. And so we need to discipline ourselves to be thankful. And we do that by reminding ourselves every day that life is a gift, that my mind is a gift, that everything I have is a gift, and therefore I should give thanks. Now, this word arguing, the second thing, I won't spend as much time on it, but arguing is so often about our pride, right? And, and you maybe notice this. People who argue all the time are the kind of people who can't let, let something go. They, they, they keep a disagreement alive. You know, they have to keep talking about it. And almost always they have this deep need to be right. Well, that's pride. And here's what we need to do about this, about arguing. We need to be willing to admit that we're wrong. In fact, because I love you, I'm going to help you with this again. I'm going to give you practice because you're not very good at this, right? You're going to say with me, I'm wrong, right? I want you to say it boldly and courageously and honestly with great, with great strength and confidence, right? Just put it out there together, one, two, three, I'm wrong. In fact, why don't we try that again because some of you just didn't do that. I could tell you didn't want to say it, but everybody needs to join in. One, two, three, I'm wrong. We're wrong. We're actually wrong far more often than we think. In fact, I just decided I'd let you know this. In case you hear about it, you can help uh, pray for me and the repercussions. But in, in the message inside, when I was talking about Islam and all the things, and some of you are laughing about this. I saw you when I, some of you were in there, and I, you were making comments about this to somebody sitting next to you. I was talking about all the things they had to do, talking about going to Mecca and making the pilgrimage and all that. And I actually said at 9 o'clock in here, that Muslims, while they're on their pilgrimage, do mass human sacrifices. Now, that's not what I had in my notes. It said mass animal sacrifices. But I said, and I didn't even know it. My wife afterwards came and got my notes and was going through it to see, what are you talking about? So if I'm not here as your pastor next week, you'll know why. Uh, but I was wrong. <laughs> I wasn't trying to be wrong. 
wasn't intending to be wrong, but I said it. And so it's going to get out there. We're actually going to like bleep it out, not bleep, but we're just going to cut that sound out for future stuff. But it's already out there. And, you know, the Internet is forever, so who knows where that's going to go. But I was wrong, okay? And we're often wrong. In fact, we're wrong more often than we think. And so as a result of that, we need to be willing to admit it. We also need to be willing to be right sometimes and not have others recognize that we're right. Ooh, that's tough. Are you willing to be right sometimes and not have other people in your life admit it to you that you're right? You see, we need to be people who care more about peace, about healthy relationships, about the mission of God in his church than about being right. And here's the sad reality. Some of us don't care. Some of us have to be right. Some of us will keep arguing with other people in our life until that person, what, bows the knee and and admits, oh, okay, you're right. Some of us will spread anger and enmity in all kinds of relationships because we have to be right. And Paul says, do everything without arguing. And we need to stop. Because when we do that, we don't look like the children of God Paul's referring to here. When we do that, we don't stand out in a warped and crooked generation. We're not blameless and pure if we're people who like to argue about everything. Second way we work out our salvation. We shine God's light by holding firmly to God's word. The second half of verse 15 and then verse 16 says, Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. So God calls us to shine like stars. What does this image mean? Well, it means you stand out. You're a star in a dark sky. We are to shine in a dark world. How do we do that? Well, here Paul says we do it by holding firmly to the word of life. And that is God's word. There are two things that are going on here I want to point out. The first is perseverance. Hold firmly is a picture of endurance, of perseverance. And and so Paul is saying this. We persevere even when we're weary. Even when we're weary. And I'm just kind of wondering how many of us need to hear that right now. How many of us say, I'm weary. How, How many of us feel very fatigued and tired from all the stuff that we've had to do and gone, have been going through for this last almost a year now? How many of us may be even thinking about letting go, giving up? If you are, please listen to God's word. Hold firm. And then as you're doing that, don't forget this. You can hold firm. You can hold on because you're being held. God's holding on to you. So whatever you're going through, however this past year has impacted your life, however tired you are, whatever's happening in your life, even maybe today, you need to be reminded God is holding on to you. And so you keep holding on to him. You keep holding firm. And and as you do that, remember what you're holding firm to is his word. See, we are called to hold firmly to the word of life. And that reminds us how much we need God's truth. Right now to cling 
uh, to his promises, to stand in his truth. And I, I think the application here is that we refuse to compromise under pressure. And there's a lot of pressure on people who follow Christ these days to say certain things, believe certain things that we know are not true. And we have to say, no, I will not compromise. I will not cave. I, I will not give in when I'm under pressure. I will hold firmly to the word of life. And then third, we serve God sacrificially and joyfully. Verses 17 and 18 says, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying when it gets to the end, if you'll hold on, then I can be proud and I can know that I did not run this race in vain, that my work among you Philippians was not useless. And because of that, I will rejoice. See, Paul is saying, even if I lose my life, even if my life gets poured out like a drink offering to God, uh, just like your sacrifice and service to God. And he's using this picture that they would have been very familiar with, um, both from the Old Testament and also from the pagan religions that were around them in their day. It was a very common thing uh, for people to make an offering by pouring out wine or sometimes perfume, sometimes pouring out blood. And the picture that Paul is painting here with this is that with a drink offering, once you pour it out, you're not getting it back, right? It's gone. Uh, There's a story in John 12. Uh, that this kind of takes our attention to, our, our memories to. You may remember the story where a woman comes in and opens up a bottle of perfume, and the aroma from the perfume permeates her whole house. She anoints Jesus' feet. She uses her hair to do that. And, and of course, Judas, who, who was the, the keeper of the money, he says, you know, we could have sold that perfume. We could have got a lot of money. We could have helped poor people with it. It's kind of interesting when you read that in the gospel, John kind of like sticks his hand up and says, hey, guys, um, excuse me, just want you to know that Judas didn't care about the poor. He, he says Judas was stealing from the treasury. Uh, but this story raises this question. Was the thing that was poured out wasted? And we have to acknowledge that any time something gets poured out, it might get wasted So what's Paul saying here? Paul is saying, you know, I may lose my life, but I'm going to rejoice even if I lose my life. Why? Because I know that my life won't be wasted if I pour it out in sacrificial service to Jesus. In fact, I want to say that to you. I want you to hear this today. Maybe somebody really needs to hear it right now. Sacrificial service is never wasted. Never See, Paul is telling us this. He thinks this because he's saying, I can rejoice. He doesn't think he's wasting his life. He doesn't think the Philippians are wasting their life. He says, I will rejoice. And then there's this next phrase. He says, and I want all of you to share that joy. What joy? What joy? Well, it's the joy that sacrifices, the joy that serves, even the joy that suffers, maybe even to the point of death. And he's telling us here, sacrificial service is not only never wasted, sacrificial service always leads joy. Do you believe that? Have you experienced that in your life? Sacrificial service always leads to joy. So as your pastor, you know, I want you to rejoice. I want you to know joy. And that's what Paul is saying to them. And so then 
as you rejoice, I'll rejoice that you're rejoicing over the sacrifices you make. And he's, he's just saying all of this happens together. It all comes together. And, and, and we're thinking about, you know, taking all that happens in our lives, even the hard things, and turning them on their head, making them reversed. Why is he rejoicing? Well, we're actually going to get into that more later. We don't have time for that today. But I, I think he's rejoicing in part. Because he knows that whatever happens, whatever happens to him, whatever happens to the Philippians, Jesus will be exalted. Jesus will be honored. Jesus will be glorified. And for Paul, that was enough. That was enough. So working out our salvation means sacrifice. Working out our salvation means we work hard. Now, I'm going to stop here for today, but I want to say this before we pray. If you can look at your life and not see any sacrifice, you are not working out your salvation. If you can look at your life and the only thing you might call sacrifice is really, honestly, when you get straight about it, not that big a deal, you're probably not working out your salvation. So I just want to ask you, is true sacrifice is true sacrifice really part of what it means for you to follow Jesus? I hope it is. I pray that it is. And my exhortation is, let's do that. Let's follow him, whatever the cost. Let's be willing to sacrifice because that's where we find the joy. That's where we find the joy. Now, I have been pushing really hard on work today. But, and the reason is that's what Paul is doing. But I want to make sure that we don't forget grace. I want to make sure that we remember that we work by grace. And so I want to end by talking about grace. And I just want to say, friend, God has been so good to you. Amen. He has been so gracious to you. And it may be that there's some of you here who've never surrendered your lives to Jesus Christ. And if that's the case for you, I just want to plead with you today, come to Jesus. Receive Jesus. Wherever you're at, whatever's been going on in your life, whatever's happening right now, whatever may be holding you back, don't let it hold you back any longer. Come to Jesus. He loves you. He is for you. He died for you. God the Father raised his son Jesus from the grave so that you could live forever. The Spirit of God is now drawing you into the work that he's doing. Come to Jesus because there's hope in Jesus. There's joy in Jesus. There's peace in Jesus. Look. Look to him. Look to Jesus. Would you bow your heads as we pray?